0: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Claire Dieterer Claire, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, yeah. My name is Claire Dieterer, and I'm a writer, critic, essayist, and my new book is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma.
0: Thank you for coming on today. I enjoyed the book a lot. It came out in April. It got a lot of positive reviews that I saw, um, and it's really interesting. And so the the stereotypical question, like, what is the one-line elevator pitch for, for the book?
1: Well, I'm really bad at elevator pitches. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been bad at them, and uh, oh well. Uh, so the, I originally wrote an essay that was published in the Paris Review in 2017, and that essay was titled, What Do We Do With The Art of Monstrous Men?, and in a sense, that's
0: the pitch line for the book. Right. I, I remember reading that that piece when it came out. So you're you're responding to the cultural changes brought about by the Me Too movement, which we're still going through and there's been like backlashes and <laughs> back, yeah, back <laughs> backlashes. It, it, the book is also more of a memoir than I expected going in. I know you've written a previous memoir or two previous memoirs. Um right so it's an interesting format and then you're but you're also looking sort of each chapter at a specific case of one person or a type of person and also like sort of including yourself yeah you know, a lot of both like self-reflection and yeah it's very, it's a very personal work so I, so how did you decide how to like structure this and that, that this is what like did you always know you wanted to have a memoiristic part of the book
1: Oh boy, that's a really big question. Okay, so backing up just a little bit, the 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 essay that the book sort of sprang from uh, was published in the midst of the kind of Me Too explosion at the end of twenty seventeen. But in fact, I had been working on it for a couple years before that, and uh, my previous book I had written a little bit about Roman Polanski, and I had learned learned a lot about Polanski when I was writing about him, and. I was really shocked to discover that I was still I could still sort of happily watch the films even though I had researched his rape of a of a very young girl. Pretty exhaustively I'd read her deposition, I you know read a lot of uh coverage of the trial and he was convicted. That's why he fled to to Europe to France. And uh and yet I could still watch Repulsion or Knife in the Water or, or Chinatown or um you know, any of these great Polanski films. And so that just sort of seemed like a personal problem to me when I started writing on it in 2015 or 2016. So when Me Too came and sort of foregrounded this problem, I had already been thinking about it for a year or something. And so I I had never conceived of the project as a response to Me Too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might be... I think that that was really lucky that I started working on it previous to that because it kind of put me in a more nuanced position automatically. I wasn't responding. I was sort of thinking on my own schedule and developing my own thoughts about it. And even after Me Too and after the book was sold in proposal, I, just, I kind of kept with that more leisurely approach. My editor, who's a great editor, just really... Uh, encouraged me to not use a lot of super contemporary examples because she wanted the book to have more staying power.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So the book was never written in this kind of responsive mode, which I think um, I feel really grateful for, that I didn't have an editor who was sort of chasing the news. But in terms of the memoir stuff, that was always the question. You know, I, I have been a critic for a really long time. I started out as a film critic and kind of simultaneous to my criticism. I've written book criticism for the last over 20 years. Um, I've also published two memoirs and written a lot of of personal essays. And so the idea that my life might flow into this work of criticism was always there. But I, you know, sometimes I worked on the book for many years. Sometimes I would throw it out. Sometimes the whole book would be a memoir. I went through all kinds of torturous decision-making Ultimately, the decision to include personal material had to do with the argument that I was making. The book is really trying to disrupt the idea that there is some authoritative answer about what we ought to do, that there's some kind of objective criticism that that knows best. And in many different ways throughout the book, I'm trying to valorize a subjective response, a response that values, feeling, a response that is aware of its own historical um, kind of uh, context Uh, a response that, you know, sort of is about your own personal feelings about the art, because when you think about this problem, you think about the biography of the artist, right, about the rotten thing that they did. But we also have our own biographies that shape our responses. So this idea of subjectivity became really important to me. And for intellectual and philosophical reasons. And as that happened, it then became important to me to include personal material in the book, just enough so that kind of my own subjectivity would be revealed the correct amount to the reader. Does
0: that make sense? It it does. Um, Okay. so you mentioned Polanski, and then if there's another sort of main uh, artist who is considered in the book, it's Woody Allen and or disagree with me if you if you, if you don't Quiet. agree with that but they're they're very s- i mean they're very similar figures in a lot of ways um like renowned filmmakers who are both still alive, both making movies as of a couple of years ago um one convicted of raping a child one um allegedly raped the child and and also married. Every you know, this complicated story of marrying his uh, partner's adopted child. Um, and... Very
1: well done. Usually, somebody gets it wrong somewhere in that. <laughs> okay,
0: so th- their movies are very different, but they're very you know they're very similar figures. Um, what do you, what do you make of that, and why why are these and and the movie um, Manhattan is also one of the main um, works you are thinking about, which it, involves a the Woody Allen character dating a 17-year-old, I I believe. Um, Why did you focus on them?
1: You know, so I wouldn't have to write a book about Kanye. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I So as I said, I was really trying to write about something that a lot of us have experienced, the sort of discomfort with the Conflict between what we know about someone's behavior and the work that they've made. I was trying to write about something we all experience, but I needed to tell it through my specific experience, right? And for me, because I am a, I started out as a film critic. These were really, really important artists to me. I think that Polanski and Alan are also really interesting. In the, oh, I think there's something about directors that really they're given such free reign, you know, this whole idea of the auteur and the person who's in control of all these other people. And there's a way in which many people besides me have written about the kind of, you know, obviously the sexualization of the film set and the male gaze on the female actress. Like there's just a lot going on there that I think sort of gave rise to my thoughts about this. And they sort of open the book. But I do I feel like Picasso and Hemingway start to sort of take up a lot of space as well. And Mm -hmm other figures that sort of come forward um the Manhattan thing made it you know it was really this interesting problem I think that you know Woody Allen I love Annie Hall I love so much of his work I grew up I'm 56 I grew up loving his work he was really important to me I sort of weirdly related to him when I was a child there was something (laughs) about the way he personified powerlessness Mm -hmm. and like poking, poking fun at the man, kind of. I He was very, I mean, part of it is we just didn't have as much culture in the 70s to relate to. But there was something about him. I had a fellow feeling about him as a child. And that feeling was very disrupted by the story of Sun Yi. And in the book, I don't really touch on the story of Dylan, um, <laughs> the child that he's accused of molesting and raping. Uh, but the Sunyi having the relationship with Sunyi, uh, Mia Farrow's daughter, uh, was really disturbing to me, and so that wasn't something I sort of decided. It wasn't like he started having this relationship with Sunyi, and I thought now I am going to conflate the art and the artist and be disturbed by it. I think that what happens so often is that the biography kind of just happens to us you know we we live in this like immersive biographical moment where we know a lot of stuff about everyone so you know all this stuff about Woody Allen and about him having a relationship with a very young girl and then you go back and you watch Manhattan his film about uh having this relationship with the marielle hemingway character who's 17 and turns 18 in the film and like in the opening scene they're out to dinner with another couple and the couple's also in their 40s and they're all sort of sitting around on a double date and she's got to go home and do homework you know it's just it's very strange it's very expressive of a certain kind of um so-called sexual freedom of the era Mm -hmm. that you know, is perceived as a victimless revolution, that particular revolution. But of course, children were the victims. Young women were the victims of that revolution. Anyway, so I, uh, I found that, you know, watching Manhattan without having it colored by my knowledge of what Woody Allen had done was impossible. And it wasn't something where I was sort of deciding to have it be impossible. It was this feeling that once I knew what I had known, what I knew, that the work itself had become stained. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the stain is not voluntary. It's not like I chose to know about Zunyi and then have it affect the work. It's It's inextricable. And I was really interested in, that was part of the ethical and kind of philosophical dilemma I was interested in because this is so often treated as something that is willed you know, to sort of conflate the art and the artist. And it's like, no, we do this. It's it's an emotional experience. We have this emotional response to what we know about the maker of the art. And especially in the case of Manhattan, where Woody Allen's um, personal biography is so close to the, the character that he plays in the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, Allen invites it um invites conflating the the art art and the artist in a way not many other um artists do i mean philip roth comes to mind um but for a lot of his like (laughs) his stretch of great films he's in it and playing some fictionalized version of himself right Um,
1: it's it's the zuckerman like persona exactly
0: right so it's unavoidable um that you think about these things whereas polanski more removed and i did i don't think he ever acted in any of his films so there, that is some All sort of dynamic. surface difference
1: he does he does appear in one of his films but i think that that's what's so interesting with an artist like you know with especially with woody allen it's like he's inviting this conflation right as you just said so smartly invite is such a good word and it's part of what he's doing. I mean, you see it in Stardust Memories where he's particularly, you know, people are asking him, why don't you make funny films anymore? His character is being asked. Right. And and then sort of, you know, you can't not conflate them. And then somehow it's it's some kind of um, failure as an audience member when, in fact, you, you do conflate them. Right. You're somehow seen as a philistine.
0: Right. And you recount a lot of different conversations you have with other people who have different reactions to a film like Manhattan. And I mean, they're usually men or maybe they're always men who you are quoting. And yeah, they're often sort of putting you down that you don't immediately separate the art from the artist. Um, Okay, so how did the cultural change of Me Too shift that? this dynamic because like, you know, Polanski kept making, like he was a fusion from justice, right. And kept making movies. And some of them were critically acclaimed. Um, and everyone sort of in the culture seemed to sort of be like, well, you know, like I'm making an excuse for it. And then at least maybe in that early me too period there was a i don't know it felt like there was a big shift and people were like how how could we have thought this way or i I don't know maybe maybe i'm oversimplifying it um no
1: i think that there's kind of two barbell perspectives that are really absolute right like on the one hand we should always separate the art from the artist and the art stands alone. And then on the other end, you know, there's this sort of uh, idea of some kind of um, usually it's present- presented as an economic justice, but that there's some kind of justice that the audience is then expected to enact. Right. Where you're you ought not you sh- really shouldn't consume art made by people who have been accused of of especially Me Too-ish misdeeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's these kind of absolutes at either end. Um, and one holds the the value of the piece of art above all else, and one holds the sort of uh, misdeed or the crime and the experience of the accuser or the victim above all else. And, you know, most of us sort of live in the middle, is Is my observation.
0: Right. How did... How does this change when the people are no longer alive, like Picasso and Hemingway? So you have a, a chapter that lists, uh, starts off by listing, you know, 20 or so bad men. And one and one of them is uh, Caravaggio, if I'm pronouncing name correctly,
1: who right, I, right. I believe
0: murdered someone. And yes. no, you know, that's sort of a funny thing you learn if you take an art history class and no one is like boycotting a caravaggio exhibit or at least i think they aren't um, right when... how
1: long do you have to be dead before it's okay
0: yeah so how do you think of, i mean so it's easy to say i'll never see another woody allen movie i mean i don't think he's gonna make another movie but like because i don't want him profiting <laughs> off of i don't want him making any money that's sort that's like the easiest level of this um but you know the the hemingway estate um if that exists you know Right. There's fewer like moral concerns if you buy a copy of uh, The Sun Also Rises about like a bad person making money. Um, So how does it how does this change as we as the bad person, the bad artist, um, the monster, you know, retreats into the past?
1: Um, There's this kind of idea when this question is asked of what can I do as a consumer to sort of like punish this artist or fix this situation. And I guess I, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to do in the book is kind of put a halt to that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a line of thinking a person can pursue. You know, we're all, many people don't want to, for instance, line the pockets of Roman Polanski or Woody Allen or Kanye for that matter, right? Right. Um, and that's understandable. And that's a fine way to feel. I'm not sure it's meaningful, really, on a personal level. Um, And I'm sort of interested in the way that asking that question resets the questioner as a consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you're then asking, well, how am I going to do ethical consumption of this art? And it just seems interesting to me that we move from, you know, you have the situation where somebody's made an accusation, right? Somebody said, hey, something bad happened to me. And there's a million different ways this can be, not a million, but there's a lot of different ways this can be responded to. You know, we can we can um, look for institutional change. We can have a conversation about what's going on. We can engage in cancel culture. You know, there's a lot of different things that can happen. What often happens is everything leaps ahead to this moment where the audience member decides what they're going to do as a consumer, right? And thereby sort of limits their own role in the dynamic. And there's a, there, this, this idea of ethical consumption that's going to somehow solve the problem is like basically, say you take somebody like Kanye, where an institution has been holding him up helping him, promoting him, supporting him, and then suddenly things go sideways and he's hateful, well, now you, the consumer, have to solve the problem. And, you know, there it's just, I think that that idea of this limited idea of the self as only being able to express itself through ethical consumption is, it's just not, I don't think it's interesting or useful. It's just like this reification of the structure of capital. You just are- Stepping into your role and being a good consumer or bad consumer. And the comparison I make in the book is this idea of, you know, we're all watching, we're in this hottest summer on record and we're, you know, thinking that we're going to take responsibility by not using plastic straws, right? So there's this kind of re, reinforcement constantly of what you're going to do individually, mm-hmm. but, but That's not necessarily your most meaningful role here. There's other roles that you have in this moment. You can decry this person, but you can also be a person who loves art. You know, when you're talking about this dynamic, on the one hand, there is this horrible thing this person has done, undeniable, you know, this whatever it is they've been accused of. On the other hand, there would be no problem. We would just throw it all out, except for we love the work. And there is some human value and some meaning in that love of the work. However, it's very hard to talk about in the context of the stuff we're talking about. You know, the accusations and the I'm going to boycott them and all these sort of decision, these decisions we're making that are so absolute and are also emotional, by the way, kind of kind of stamp a heavy foot in comparison to art love, which is more ephemeral and harder to talk about, you know, when you're talking about all these different difficult ethical choices and then you're like, but the opening notes of kind of blue mean everything to me or are so beautiful to me or so entwined in my own personal history. That's also who we are. We're the person navigating the love of the art and the horror at whatever the action is. And I feel like in this conversation, the love often sort of gets tossed out or ignored,
0: but of course it's the most
1: important ingredient
0: right and okay uh, why did you include the subtitle a fan's dilemma and why did you instead of a I don't I don't know what a a different word for fan would have been uh art appreciators uh, dilemma or or something like that
1: yeah well you know if you know people you know anybody who's written a nonfiction book knows that you like torment yourself for months over your subtitle right (laughs) and this book what I was really trying to do and you can kind of this comes forward in this conversation, I was really trying to think about the experience of the audience, right? So the book is not like some big, you know, it's not some catalog of here's all the rotten people who ever set pen to paper or, you know, put film into a film camera, uh, into a camera. But it's meant instead to sort of describe the experience of the audience as they navigate these two things, the sort of moral outrage and art love. How do you make your way through it? And You know, there's some ways in which the book is read sometimes as a kind of prescription, like you ought to do this or you shouldn't do this. But the impulse, I think, is more descriptive than that. What is the experience of the audience? So and moreover, I think that I was really interested in the part of the audience that is non-rational, you know, is feeling is really connecting with the work and the work feels vital to who you are. You know, the way you listened to music when you were a teenager and it meant everything to you. It sort of created an out or I don't know if that was the case, for you, but it was for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It created this kind of repository for your emotions and um, for my emotions, excuse me. So I felt like, you know, I kept trying to write all these subtitles with the word audience or the autobiography of the audience or something more kind of official sounding, but ultimately it just felt like the fan was the right word because immediately the reader knows that I'm in the hot seat, right? I'm the fan. I'm the person who still loves the work even after everything.
0: Mm -hmm. So in a lot of these cases, the crime or alleged crime is sort of something that at a different time in history was maybe not considered so bad or a crime at all Um, like, you know, beating your wife or something uh, was you know, domestic abuse, marital abuse was not a crime at some point in history, whereas, you know, murder has always been a crime. And you close with Miles Davis and I know almost nothing about him or jazz or blues in general. So I didn't even know that there were accusations or I guess, what would we call them? Not accusations. He he like beat women and treated people very badly. Sort of, it seems like a lot of these cases that cause quandaries are more like people come to realize that you shouldn't like a man should not beat his wife or rape a woman. And at, at some <laughs> former point in American history, like that was fine. Or that was brushed under the rug. I don't even know where I'm going with this question, but. It it seems like, whereas let's say you know like tomorrow like Tom Cruise like murdered someone and it was very obvious that he was guilty, and he and he ended up being convicted, that would somehow play out differently I think, because everyone does agree that you shouldn't murder people. Whereas there probably are still some people out there who think, you know, you can't really like rape your wife like that doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean,
1: there's this famous quote from Whoopi Goldberg. I can't remember what year she said it, but she said the Polanski uh, crime was not. She literally said it wasn't rape, rape. Right. (laughs) So there's um, there's this perception that somehow the mores have changed.
0: Mm -hmm. And And so it's sort of like unfair
1: right but I to, to I, the even, poor men
0: you know to judge yeah them.
1: exactly and i think that there is this kind of when we when we think about the mores or the or the ideals changing you know the, the sort of standards of behavior changing i think that there's this weird kind of um liberal self-congratulation at work where there's this kind of very hard to shake belief that we're getting better all the time mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that we're sort of improving and now we know that it's not okay to have anal sex with a 13 year old and we're so much better now and i i think that you know this is a really slippery way to approach these behaviors because you know the fact is lots of things that we think were accepted in the past absolutely were not you know and i the ch- in the chapter about the past i write about wagner and this idea that maybe his anti-semitism was perceived as as somehow more acceptable. But he himself, you know, like, he was very aware that anti-Semitism was outside the accepted realm of discourse in Mm -hmm. his era, in his milieu. So this idea that somehow we're better is something I'm pushing back a little bit and pushing back against a little bit in this book. I think that, um, you know, maybe a more important or more useful question is to ask what is it we're not seeing now right we're we're sort of like sitting around patting ourselves on the back about not thinking it's okay to have sex with 13 year olds and and the world's on fire mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so it's just there's there's the this idea that we're improving is something that I'm pushing against in the book at the same time i will say that one of the ideas that i'm dealing with is Kind of also pushing back against this whole concept of cancel culture and uh, the the intimation in the term cancel culture that suggests that people should not say when something terrible has happened to them right that's all cancel culture or me too is is somebody like raised their hand and said, "Hey, this person did something terrible to me, and what follows after that is complex and and a, a, a kind of um You know sometimes a shit show (laughs) but the actual impulse to say that something was wrong is 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 actually the thing that can make things improve and can make us be better how can we do better if people don't say what's wrong right so there's this sort of weird simultaneous congratulating ourselves for being better and yet you know when people do speak up and say something's wrong what's saying well no no we're not going to do that
0: because that's cancel culture Mm -hmm.
1: You follow my distinction there.
0: Yes. No, that, that makes sense. So we've, I think exclusively been talking about male artists who you consider in the book, um, but towards the end, you have a section on both yourself, uh, the chapter title am I a monster? And also, um, a group of women artists who abandon their children in some sense in order to pursue their art, which you, um and the memoiristic uh, part of the book, you considered this as well in relation to your own work as a writer and, um, versus or not versus, but alongside your life as a mother. Why did you, so probably most people would not say that, you know, a writer who was a bad mother is the same as someone who raped or murdered or, or whatever. Um, why did you, um, want to explore this, this aspect as well?
1: Well, for two reasons. It was a kind of two pronged attack. Um, On the one hand, I wanted to kind of give the, you know, when women are judged or are perceived as, um, you know, being bad people, the bar for what they have to do is so much lower. You know, the things that are described as abandonment when done by women. Right. Like, you know, leaving to go make your art for several months or whatever, are a matter of course for male artists. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing I was sort of pointing at was this idea that you don't have to do very much to be monstrous if you're a woman. But I also, as I said earlier, there's, the, the book is really working out of um, this place of subjectivity. It's trying to, you know, I, I, a big moment for me in the book was when I read the essay, Mad at Miles by Pearl Clegg so she's this this writer who had really really loved Miles Davis's work and she it was like interwoven with her life and when she first fell in love with it she did not know about Miles Davis's transgressions so she fell in love with the work and eventually she found out you know that he was an abuser of women and she was also a survivor of abuse herself so the essay that she wrote mad at miles was just this like kind of hot beast of an essay. She's just furious. You I mean as she says in the title she leads with emotion. She's mad at Miles. And of course she loves Miles, right? She's working out of her own experience and and love for him, her subjective deeply felt experience and also her subjectively driven horror and outrage over what he had done. She's mad at him because she is a survivor of abuse. She's mad at him because she feels betrayed and she's mad at him because she, a black woman, doesn't wanna be mad, doesn't wanna have to have this kind of conflict around a great black male artist. So she's bringing all her own experience to this essay. And when I read that essay, I really thought, this is, I'm gonna come back around to your question. When I read that essay, (laughs) I really thought, this is what I've been missing in this conversation. Right, I've been missing this, not just freely shared emotional response, but this kind of putting on a pedestal or lifting up the emotional response and foregrounding it because that's what art does. And that's what these stories do. They bring out this really emotional response. So when I read Pearl Clegg, I thought, wow, that is, you know, this is this incredible uh, subjective portrait of the relation to this work, almost like an ekphrastic poem. And uh, I didn't walk away from that thinking, oh, I should think the same thing Pearl Clegg thinks. I walked away thinking, well, what's my subjective experience of consuming art and making art? I'm going to just try to tell that as clearly as I can, the same way Clegg did. And then maybe that will create an opportunity for the reader to think about the same things. So all that's a long way of saying so much of these, so, so much of this issue for me is bound up with motherhood. You know, that my own experience of monstrosity, of feeling like a rotten person, has to do with cutting the door against my children or turning away from my children in order to make my work. And so it grew out of this really subjective place. It's part of a portrait of my own experience. And I don't expect every reader to share that experience, but it's sort of modeling thinking about it from an extremely subjective point of view. I also think writing about, you know, the abandoning mother's chapter where I'm talking about the conflict between art and motherhood, you could sort of replace the terms of that conflict with the conflict between self and care, right? Which we yeah. all have to deal with. It's the the art mother conflict is not universal, but the calls of the self versus the calls of care either is universal or should be more universal, Right. Like this idea of taking care of people is something, if we could like, you know, flip and, you know, parcel it out a little bit more, then mothers wouldn't have to do so much of it. Mm-hmm. It is a conflict we all experience. We all sacrifice something in order to do the work we want to do.
0: Um, Another, so another late chapter that is very autobiographical is, uh, is titled Drunks. And well, can you tell me why you included this this part of the book?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of without pointing at it too much, there's a the book isn't, you know, you mentioned that it felt like a memoir. And in a lot of memoir, there's sort of the the main character, the narrator, the author, undergoes an emotional transformation, right? You're sort of one person at the beginning of the book, then you go through a bunch of stuff and and you've changed and become different. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways in which this book is a political transformation. The person at the beginning of the book is kind of a a more liberal, punitive feminist. She's more the kind of feminist who's like, what you did was wrong, and we're going to punish you for it, right? And what is sometimes called a carceral feminist, um, though I don't put that term in the book because that just was a whole other can of worms. But as the book goes on, and I lived through the experiences that we all lived through from 2016 to 2022, but also I went through some person my own personal experiences. I grew politically into thinking less about less about a politics that was about me pointing out you doing your wrongdoing and more looking at systemic problems that are shaping all of our experience. And within that systemic model, I'm able to find more compassion for the wrongdoer, right? I'm able to say like, okay, nobody is totally a monster. Sometimes people are caught in this larger systemic problem. I can have sympathy for someone even as I, as I fight against what they, or even as I disagree with what they've done, or I'm heartbroken by what they've done. And of course that compassion requires the understanding that that monstrosity and that, that um that there is some of that in myself right it's not a just just about pointing over there it's about pointing back at the self and so my own experience of becoming sober was part of that you know it was actually kind of a political thing where it wasn't about like i'm going to be this sort of um sanctimonious feminist it was more like okay i'm down in you know i'm in the mess of life mm-hmm. and we're all trying to figure out how to sort of be a person and make it through so the the quitting drinking became a really important way of expressing that story of an expanding political compassion.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I mean, you could you know, you can imagine some type of person who would say, you know, you shouldn't read like Hunter S. Thompson, like he I'm well, I'm sure there's lots of reasons you shouldn't read him, but like he he was <laughs> he was using illegal drugs all the time. And he was like, or, you know, he was like a junkie, or just, th- you know, thinking of, like, there was a time where um, alcoholism or alcohol abuse was maybe thought very, like, a very morally charged thing. Um, and you could, you know, maybe say, don't read that, go watch that movie, the The filmmaker was an awful drunk. Um, do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> there's a... I, so I think it's interesting. You're yeah that you become more compassionate towards like both the filmmakers, the artists, the accused monsters, the actual monsters, and like yourself at the same time. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that you know the thing about quitting drinking, quitting any substance abuse that you're doing is that you sort of have to admit that you're being rotten because otherwise you wouldn't quit because all you want to do is keep doing the thing, right? <laughs> That's what it is to be addicted. So unless you were screwing up pretty royally, you wouldn't be quitting. So you simply by quitting, you're admitting that you're, that you are, you know, doing some bad behaviors or well on the way to doing bad behaviors. And so that kind of acknowledgement is built into recovery communities. And I hadn't thought about this really deeply but then I started to notice that especially online recovery communities that are inhabited by people who are much younger than me and that tend to be recovering drug addicts um had a lot of fractious commentary around me too. You know, and this is even as recovery communities have had, have suffered their own t- me too reckonings, right? Like there's been obviously this is a really vulnerable population And there's certainly been lots of abuse within recovery communities, communities at the same time, people who are recovering addicts, some people are suspicious of me too, because of the idea that you no longer get to be a person if you did something rotten, because if you no longer get to be a person, if you did something rotten, that would be all of us, the addicts, (laughs) you know, this, this idea that you are more than the worst thing you ever did became a really important idea um, for me personally for thinking about my relationship to the work and then thinking about some political ideas as well that inform the end of the book.
0: Um, how do you see like where we are in the culture right now with a lot of this stuff? It seems like ma- like maybe people are moving more towards your, the, sort of the area that you occupy towards the end. I'm thinking about, and I think we briefly messaged about this, the, sort of largely negative reaction to this exhibit that the Brooklyn Museum put on about uh-huh. uh, Picasso that was co- like co-curated by Hannah Gadsby, who was a stand-up comedian who had this breakout special in 2017 or so, which I think maybe some people look back on now as sort of like, wow, I can't believe everyone was so excited about this thing or it, co- it caused so much tumult. Um Yeah, people seem... To have- <laughs> There was this moment of intense moralism, and I think the fact that Trump was president played into all this. And then this, and yeah. d- during the pandemic, there was also this, a lot of in- very intense moralism related to uh, race and racism. And then maybe we're, like, society has just moved on to other things. Yeah, where, where do you think the culture is right now?
1: I don't know. You know, it's been interesting. I feel really lucky I put this book out now. I think it's um, it's I do think that there's more openness to nuance in a response to these problems. I think than there was, you know, right in 2017 or 2018 when especially when the just the despair and rage for Trump was ra- you know, was out of mm. control all these new allegations coming forward. I think that. It was maybe a nuanced conversation might not have been as welcome then, though people certainly seem to like the original essay, which, you know, contains some of the ideas we're talking about or my original essay that the book is based on. Um, I don't know. Like, I think the Hannah Gadsby Brooklyn Museum thing is really interesting because and I didn't see the show, so I can't I, I feel a little funny talking about it. But it seems like there was a lot of impatience with the kind of um, thinness of the way she of her politics, like of the way she sort of tried to address the problem of Picasso. And then there was this sort of simultaneous thing happening where people were protesting the fact that she was showing in a museum that had a Sackler funded gallery. Am I remembering that correctly?
0: That. Yes. And yes, I think that's right. This Is the family behind OxyContin? Is that is that correct?
1: That's correct. So they're the you know Nan Golden's been doing this incredible work, um, bringing their uh, misdeeds to the and their relationship to cultural institutions that are sort of uh, you know art washing the ill gotten sources of their money. They're mm-hmm. using you know, they're putting their and slapping their names on all these different galleries, and it's all been written about recently in Empire of Pain incredible book. But uh, so there's been some conversation around the Gadsby thing, because it's like, well, you're you're dunking on Picasso and somehow intimating that his work isn't meaningful while you're showing in a gallery, you know, in a museum that has the Sackler Gallery. So like. I think that that shows that people still are I don't know. I think the the critique has moved on to maybe something more material or substantive, but I'm Mm. not sure. I don't
0: know. Yeah. And there's a, you know, often in like, there's like a circular firing squad or sort of like everyone, like everyone attacking each other kind of thing can often happen in these areas, and yeah, so you have Gatsby decrying Picasso, but then Gatsby did something wrong, but then the person accusing, right. you know, Nan, maybe Nan Golden's publisher has investments in South African right. diamond mines, or, you know, whatever, so that um right. that is sort on of a dead end. Item. Yes. <laughs> right. um, but also, yeah, and then maybe just more of a, like, Marxist or anti-capitalist critique has entered back in, and yeah, if, you, if you're doing anything with rich and famous people, like your hands are not super clean and, you know, uh, Gatsby Special was on Netflix and we learned a lot about how Netflix operates and treats uh, right, its right. employees over the, you know, the past couple of years. So, yeah, so it just uh, maybe it's just people are tired of that sort of like moralizing, simplistic moralizing. Um, and that. So, I
1: mean, I think what's interesting. Sorry, go ahead. I interrupted.
0: Did maybe, maybe just that arrow was a hot sort of a hothouse aberration or something. And we moved on, but it's hard to say.
1: Well, I think that the thing that, um, you know, again, I have not seen the show, but I think that from what I read, from the, from the criticism I read of the show, I think kind of the the ingredient that they seem to share was kind of fatigue with the way the show didn't let Picasso be important or let his work be beautiful, right? And this is where we get in trouble is if we sort of decide that the work is no longer valuable. Who gets to decide? Who gets to say this work isn't beautiful or isn't important? Because if we're going to get into deciding that, like that's kind of an interesting thing to do. But also I think that there's something kind of, I don't know, like there's something kind of, inauthentic about just writing off the work it's okay to not like picasso i don't even really like picasso that much but the work has a lot of meaning to a lot of people and i think that again going back to what i was saying earlier i think this discussion is too facile if we don't let the work have importance because Mm -hmm. then having an argument about people having done rotten things. And where's the argument? You just throw everything out. <laughs> but, you know, the, the sticky wicket, the part that's really meaningful is in the love. And that's the part that people don't want to talk about because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. And in fact, I get in, tr- in trouble every day.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And if, you know, if we, you can imagine some, you know, someone who was an awful person and an awful artist as well, and you wouldn't really, if no one cared about the work, then, yeah, you write, you write them off.
1: But it can also be like a personal lack of meaning. You know, I'm thinking of my delightful and very smart ex-husband. I don't mean this as a dunk on him, but I remember <laughs> him saying, um, you know, well, I'm never going to listen to Kanye's music before. And it's like, well, you never listened to Kanye's music? <laughs> anyway. So it's not meaningful. Yeah. I think that what's revealed about this exercise, this book-length exercise, is both that you know these feelings we have about the crimes are valid, and that, in fact, kind of looking at those feelings, allowing them to have meaning can can be a feminist act, right? To say these matter. But also at the same time, the other thing that can be useful in this exercise is kind of reinforcing and and um, you know, letting art have its due, letting it be important.
0: Uh, that sounds like a good place to end things. Um, <laughs> so the book is "Monsters: A Fan's Dilemma." A link to the Amazon page will be in the show notes, unless you have an ethical <laughs> objection to linking to Amazon. In which case, we can link somewhere else. You but you it. know,
1: Every, whatever you do is fine.
0: Yeah, it's it's there's no ethical consumption under capitalism as saying th- goes. Um, I enjoyed the book a lot. Yeah, it, it makes you, it made me think about a lot of different things. And there's whole sections that we did discuss and, uh, you know, further conversations we could have had sparked by the book. So, um, thank you for coming on. I, I recommend the book to, to people who enjoyed this conversation or are interested in this, uh, this very vexed question, <laughs> is there anywhere you want to point people who want to keep following your work?
1: Oh, I'm in all the usual places, all the online usual places. Yeah okay yes
0: well thank you again for coming on and thanks to all of the people who listen to this and they can rate and review or tell their friends or um try to cancel me or they can do whatever <laughs> they want uh, so, <laughs> that's
1: Ken we all thank right. you so much for having me